Amen. Um, Lena and I responded to that call, wow, 35 years ago when we went to Turkey together. You met Lena, those of you who were here this morning, telling one of our stories from Turkey. If you want to know uh, more stories from Lena, you can pick up our magazine at the back in the, in the foyer, Silk Road, on the Silk Road. This is a magazine about OM's ministries in Western and Central Asia with lots of great stories. When we went out to Turkey, we went uh, into a situation. We, the summer of 1980, we went out to meet some of the workers, and what impressed us was how heavy-hearted people were. There was a sense of barrenness and fruitlessness, uh, burnout and depression among the workers. And uh, we thought, what are we doing? Are we going out here to commit spiritual suicide? And uh, God spoke to us through a, a verse in Isaiah, Isaiah 43:19. I'm doing a new thing. And when we got to Ankara in the autumn of 1980, we found several other of the new colleagues, other fresh, raw recruits, had uh, got the same verse. God had been speaking to several of us that I'm going to do a new thing. And we had the, the joy and the privilege of going to Ankara in 1980 when there was one, just Hatije, who Lena told the story of this morning. And by the time we left, 11 years later, there was a group of about 30 or 35, the, the beginning of a, a church in Turkey, God doing a new thing. So my scripture reading this evening is from Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43, picking it up at verse 14. The prophet Isaiah writes, This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians in the ships in which they took pride. I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's creator, your King. This is what the Lord says, He who made a way through the sea, a path through the mighty waters, who drew out the chariots and horses, the army and reinforcements together, and they lay there, never to rise again, extinguished, snuffed out like a wick. Forget the former things. Don't dwell on the past. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Don't you see it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. The wild animals honor me, the, jackal, the jackals and the owls because I provide waste, water in the wilderness, streams in the wasteland, to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. See, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Don't you perceive it? Um, a few months ago, I was in California. I was um, on a prayer retreat with some colleagues 
on a, in a beautiful Christian camp centre up in the mountains outside LA, wonderful forest. And we were going for a walk through the forest and suddenly my friend t turned and, and said, look, there's a deer. And then his wife said, yes, there's three. And I looked again, I couldn't see anything. And we, I looked and looked and then finally out trotted three deer. Now, why had I not been able to see it and my friends had been able? Well, they're from Wisconsin. Wisconsin's second national religion is deer hunting in the season. Everybody shoots deer, so everybody's very uh, aware of and accustomed to seeing deer. And uh, Dave's wife, Pam, in particular, was a farm girl out from the boonies of Wisconsin. She had seen lots of deer in her life. She could see three, Dave could see one, I was zero, nil. And that made me think, what is it that means some people can see something and other people can't? What do we see, what don't we see? Because here Isaiah says, look, open your eyes, see it, see what God is doing. Now, the situation here when he makes this prophecy, delivers this prophecy, he's, he's speaking to the people of Israel in Babylon. They're in exile. They've been through trauma. Uh, Jerusalem has been utterly ruined. The streets have run with blood. The temple of God has been destroyed. It seems that everything is finished. There's no hope. God has left us. We're doomed. And Isaiah says, no, there's a hope. Look, you can't see it because you're broken. You can't see it because of the trauma of your past. You can't see it in particular because of your fear. Because I picked that up from the context, uh, right through these passages of Isaiah in the 40s, again and again, Isaiah says, do not fear. Right here in uh, chapter 43, verse 1, he says, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. In verse 5, he says, do not be afraid, for I am with you. The big theme is do not fear. Because fear stops you from seeing. Fear twists your perception so that you only see the negative and you can't see the positive. You see the threat. You see exaggerated danger. You see the impossibilities and the hopelessness. Um, when I was in Turkey at one point, I uh, was arrested by the Turkish police uh, officer came to the door and he said, could you come out and chat with me for a few minutes? So I started to go out and he said, maybe you should put your shoes on. And I found that I was actually held for three days and then we were arrested again later on and held for a week. And that was quite a difficult time. And uh, in the end we were acquitted and it all worked out very well. But after that, every time I saw a police car, whoo, I jumped. 
I, I thought, they're coming to get me. Actually, probably it was just a regular traffic cop who didn't even know about my existence. But every time I saw a police car, because of the past, I saw a threat. I saw danger when actually there wasn't any. That's part of the psychology of fear. Now that's very relevant to what I want to talk about this evening of the new thing God is doing among Muslims because many, many people are afraid of Muslims. I think it's the biggest spiritual problem we have in dealing with Muslims is our fear. That the media feeds the stereotype that they're all terrorists, they're going to blow us up. Um, just last night I was at Ross's house enjoying the pizza and uh, with the young folk or the not so young folk and one of them said she'd been out in the park with an Italian friend and they'd seen a Muslim lady covered up and this Italian friend had said, I really feel uncomfortable. Just that person and her dress code provoked in him a reaction of discomfort and nervousness and fear. And there's something in Islam which makes us afraid. Now, of course, that's to, to do with terror and the, the media have hyped up the terror so that now when I say Muslim, what comes to people's minds is a terrorist. In pe many people's minds, Islam has come to equal terror. So when we see a Muslim, we think terrorist. I, again, when I was in the States in October, uh, a pastor in Wisconsin told me a somewhat humorous incident of one of, with one of his church members uh, that one day she looked across the street and saw the new neighbor move in. And the new neighbor was a Muslim lady with hijab, uh, a covered Muslim lady. And this dear American saint is horrified. They've come to attack us. They've come to blow up our street. And uh, she ran to the back of the house and fell on her knees and prayed, Oh God, deliver us. Oh God, save us and protect us. And uh, the Lord answered her prayer, not in the way she expected. Instead, the Holy Spirit whispered in her heart, uh, what's the appropriate behavior for a new neighbor? And she sort of came to her senses and realized that fear was driving her when it was really wrong. And she went across the street, knocked on the door and said, welcome to our street because that's what you should do with a new neighbor. Welcome to our street, and the next thing you should say to a new neighbor is, is there anything I can do to help you? Because this lady with her headscarf is not, I mean, we, we, we shouldn't first of all see her as a Muslim, we should see her as a neighbor. And Jesus said, love your neighbor. Well, Moses said, love your neighbor. Jesus added, love your enemy. But fear 
distorts. And fear stops us from seeing that covered lady as another human being like me. And I see her instead as a threat and as a problem and as a danger. And that's been a lot of the response to the 1.3 million refugees arriving in Europe last year, because many of them were Muslims. And uh, is it a crisis? Well, it is a crisis. I accept that. Clearly, it's a big challenge for European societies. How are we going to cope with these numbers and what's the impact on our cohesion? But if we're Christians, we need to see it as an opportunity. Uh, Angela Merkel, President, Prime Minister, President of Germany, was asked, aren't you afraid that all these people are going to Islamicize us? They're going to take over. And she said, well, there's a million of them, there's a hundred million of us. But then she said, actually, you know what? This is an opportunity for us to re-engage with our roots, that we've forgotten who we are. It's a chance for the Church of Europe to rediscover its identity, for, Christ for Europeans to discover again our Christian heritage. And Angela Merkel has been exhorting the German people to read their Bibles. She said once, uh, if I ask you to write out for me the meaning of Pentecost, hey, that's interesting, today's Pentecost. So I, Merkel said to the German people, if I ask you to tell me the meaning of Pentecost, will you be able to answer me? Shame on you. You need to read your Bibles, you need to rediscover who you are and stand up for that. So all these Muslims coming are an opportunity for us to be Christians again. And it's an opportunity for us to reach unreached peoples. Because God is doing a new thing. Even in this refugee crisis. In quite wonderful ways. I talked this morning about Kurds. I talked about Kurds coming to faith in Syria. First time we've ever had Kurdish churches, Kurdish house churches in the north of Syria. And on the back of that, suddenly, in our front room in Glasgow, we have Kurds studying the scriptures. A young man called Siabash in Iran, asking the imam questions that the imam couldn't answer and the imam getting angry with him. And he went away and he read Dostoevsky. A young man at the age of 21 from a Kurdish background in Iran, reads Dostoevsky and Crime and Punishment. And out of the picture of Jesus in Dostoevsky, I wonder how many people have read Crime and Punishment here. But anyway, Dostoevsky's picture of Jesus captured his heart. And then a cousin smuggled in a copy of the Kurdish New Testament and he started to read that and he fell in love with Jesus. And then he got into political trouble because he's a bit of a Kurdish nationalist and the regime in Iran didn't like that. So he had to flee, came to Glasgow 
a friend invited him to our church, and now he's devouring the Bible and passionate that his people, the Kurds, would find out about Jesus. So up to now, the Kurds have been Muslims. To be a Kurd has meant to be a Muslim. And if a Kurd becomes a Christian, he becomes an enemy. He betrays his people. But suddenly, quite suddenly, because of ISIS and because of Islamic fundamentalism, Kurds are saying, why are we Muslims? There was a time before Islam when we were Zoroastrian and some of us were Christians. So we need to think again as a Kurdish people about who we are. What is our Kurdish identity? Does it need to be Muslim or can a Kurd be a Christian? And my friend is uh, recruiting his Kurdish acquaintances in Glasgow to come to our Alpha course. Let's, in the last two, three years, starting to see Kurds come to faith. And it's the same with Afghans. We had a team in Vienna. So preaching to Afghan refugees in Vienna. And one day after the end, at the end of the gospel presentation, one of the Afghans said to our colleague, this has been hidden from us until now. I think that's an extraordinary phrase. This has been hidden, veiled, until now. Because up to now, we couldn't, well, it, 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 it wasn't accessible. We were there in Afghanistan and we couldn't hear it. We couldn't read it. And if we could read it, we didn't, couldn't understand it because there was a veil. And if we could understand it, we would resist it. This has been hidden from us until now. A, a friend in Australia, another of our colleagues working with Afghans in Australia, has been there for 15 years in Sydney. For 14 years he was praying for Afghans and nothing happened. And then suddenly last year, a little fellowship pops up. And it's a great story of an of a Afghan who was in Saudi, who went to Mecca seven times and was disillusioned in Mecca by what he saw. Starts searching, goes to Delhi in India, meets a Christian Afghans. His friend is healed of epilepsy, comes to faith, goes to Indonesia, finds a group in Indonesia, is trained in Christian ministry, and arrives in Sydney, Australia. And his first night in Sydney, Australia, he, he's staying with some relatives, and he tells his relatives that I'm now a believer in Jesus. And the relatives get upset with him and abuse him and swear at him and throw him out. But the next day, some of those relatives came to him privately and said, you know what you said last night? I want to know more. And within a week, an Afghan group had formed. 
a new thing. The Afghans are gathering to worship Jesus in Australia. Kurds are studying the Bible in Glasgow. It's a new day. Let's not see the danger and the threat. Let's see the opportunity. There's another passage that I also want to refer to tonight. Where, God, where the Lord says, look and see. And that's in John chapter 4. John 4, 35. Jesus says, to, this is at the end of the account of the Samaritan woman. And she's gone back into the town to bring her friends. And the disciples have brought food. And in John 4, 34. John chapter 4, verse 34. Jesus says to the disciples, well, they don't understand what he's saying. They, let's pick it up at 32, because he, Jesus says to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And they don't understand that, and they say to each other, could someone have brought him food? And he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. You have a saying, it's still four months and then harvest. I tell you, Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ripe. You say there's four more months. You say it's not ripe. I tell you, open your eyes and look because it jolly well is ripe. You can't see it, but I see it. I want you to see it because I want you to get involved in that harvest. You need to see that these fields are ripe. So why couldn't the disciples see the fields are ripe, why couldn't they understand what Jesus meant when he said, I've got food to eat that you know nothing about? Because, I think, in the context of this passage, of their prejudice against Samaritans. When Jesus, at the beginning of the chapter, says to the Samaritan lady, give me a drink, she says, how can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Because you Jews do not associate with us. And, and if you get into the Greek, the Greek there is you don't eat with us. That we're two separate communities. Two communities that are afraid of each other. Two communities that look down on each other. Two communities divided by a history of hostility and suspicion. Now it's very interesting because the Samaritans had the Torah. They had the Pentateuch. They knew about the prophets. They knew a Messiah was coming. They knew that there is one. There was a lot in common. And yet they were divided. So that the average Jew would not walk through Samaria. And what strikes me is that that is really the situation of us with Muslims today. We feel uncomfortable with them. We feel anxious. We feel fearful. We don't visit each other. We don't eat together. We don't know each other. And when you don't know each other, you start to misunderstand each other. And misunderstanding leads to suspicion. And suspicion leads to fear. And the 
irony of fear usually is that it's mutual. That if I misunderstand you and I'm suspicious and afraid of you, probably you feel the same towards me. And that is certainly the situation with Muslims in the UK. We feel they're here, they're going to make trouble, they're going to take over, um, they might do something crazy. They feel we're a danger to them, to their community, to their heritage, to their identity, to their traditional morality. So you've got two communities divided by prejudice. And so, when the disciples looked at the Samaritan woman and the Samaritan village, they just saw a problem. They could not conceive that this is a, a, a field ripe for harvest. Because prejudice sees the negative. A banal example would be a beautiful young lady and everybody praises her great beauty except for someone else who is perhaps jealous, a rival for the affections of a young man, who when he looks, well no, sorry, the rival, when she looks at the beautiful young lady, her comment is, she's got a big nose because she focuses on the negative, doesn't see all the positives. When I was in Turkey, uh, one time I went to a school because I had a, a, an address of a, a fellow in the school who wanted a Bible, so I was taking the Bible to the school and I met a teacher, so the teacher knew that I'm a missionary who's got a Bible for one of the students in the school, so the teacher doesn't like me. Now, I've told the story wrong. I should have first of all told you that when I was in Turkey, often my Turkish friends said, I had wonderful Turkish. They often said to me, your Turkish is better than ours, which is flattery, but very nice. <laughs> so I'm used to people telling me you've got great Turkish until I meet this teacher. And the teacher says to me, your Turkish is rubbish. How long have you been here? How can you possibly destroy our language like this? So what happened? That the day before I had this wonderful Turkish and then overnight it had all gone to pot and it was rubbish. And of course nothing had happened to my Turkish. It was in the eye of the beholder. Because he didn't like me. Because he was suspicious of me. He thought I had rubbish Turkish. So what do we see? Do we see the problems? Do we see the opportunities? I, I talked this morning a bit about the church in Lebanon and how they have been able to get past their fear and their prejudice. That traditionally Christians in Lebanon saw Muslims as problems, as liars, as people who are going to make difficulty, who uh, we want to keep out of our church. And thanks to the Syrian civil war, that's changed. And I've got a quick video about that. We don't have a video. I'm getting deaf signals, but basically thumbs down. <laughs> okay. 
that this church in Lebanon that saw Muslims as a problem, as people who are going to stir things up that we don't want to associate with, has turned around. I heard last year that at the beginning of the year, January 2015, there were 35 discovery Bible studies, 35 Bible studies among Syrian refugees in Beirut. By the end of the year, that was 600. 600 Bible study groups of Syrian refugees in Beirut. A war. God's spirit moving in the heart of his people. Moving their hearts with compassion. So now instead of an enemy, a problem, someone I don't want to associate with, someone I don't want to share food with, I see someone who needs me, someone who I should minister to, someone who I should pray with, someone who I should love. Two things that stop us seeing what God is doing. One is fear, and one is hatred. What's the response? The response to fear is to pray for boldness, that we wouldn't let the fear paralyze us. We will still feel it, but we won't let it stop us, and we reach out. and to pray for love. To love the ones that others do not love. To follow the prompting of the Spirit when he puts compassion in our hearts to reach out. I'm applying this to Muslims, but really it's true for anybody. right here in Hamilton as evangelical Christians are we afraid are we uncomfortable do we avoid a very simple question that I think is very relevant is who am I eating with The Samaritan lady said to Jesus, you Jews don't eat with us because you're afraid of us and because you think we're unclean and you don't want to have a relationship. And in one sense, the example of Jesus is that mission boils down to who are you eating with? Who are you inviting into your home? Whose home, whose home are you going into? Because food together is where relationship and friendship starts. I think I'll leave it there.
And maybe even as I say it, the Spirit is prompting you, thinking of a colleague or a neighbor or a classmate. And he's saying, on you go. Have a cup of coffee. That's what's happened in Lebanon. And suddenly, there's a harvest. Because God was working, but they couldn't see it, but now their eyes have been opened. And I'm sure right here in Hamilton, there are places where God is working, lives where God is working. And the problem is we don't see it. Because we're afraid and because of prejudice, because those kind of folk are not like us. Father, you are the Lord of the harvest. And you prayed that your father would send laborers out into the harvest field. The fields are white unto harvest. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send laborers. And I pray that you would open our eyes to see the harvest. Lord, fill us with boldness and deliver us from fear. Fill us with love and set us free from our prejudices. And I just pray, Lord, that tonight you would show us the specific fears and prejudices that we have that are blinding our eyes to what you're doing. And show us, Holy Spirit, who you would like us to reach out to. To take the initiative to overcome fear. To embrace someone who's a bit different. because you're doing a new thing. You always are doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Help us to see it. Because we pray in and for the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.